This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. LeBron fires. And he hits! What a shot! LeBron goes to the left wing, down the left side. Three ball. Got it! LeBron to the line. LeBron to the lane. Scooped it up and in with 2.2 seconds to go. Elo looking, looking. Fires to Doherty. Back to Elo. The three in the air. It's gone! He won it! Episode number 88 of Play by Playcast is one that really needs no introduction. Thanks as always for the subscribe or the download. Hey, the rating or review, if you have a couple of seconds, wherever you listen to this podcast, be it on iTunes or on Stitcher, however you might find us, if you want to throw a rating or review, a couple of stars preferably more stars than not our way that would be greatly appreciated my name is joel godet and this is the podcast about play-by-play broadcasters for play-by-play broadcasters hosted by a play-by-play broadcaster it's a professional development podcast diving into the tips tricks experience stories process and preparations of some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business episode 88 is longtime voice of the cleveland cavaliers and a man that many would call one of, if not the best, voices of basketball, Joe Tate. He retired back in 2011 after 39 years in the NBA, the Cleveland Cavaliers. He also spent some time elsewhere with the Chicago Bulls and the New Jersey Nets. Uh, But an iconic voice and one that, if you've listened to this podcast long enough, uh, he's a guy whose name has come up on multiple occasions when talking with multiple other people on previous episodes. So as I've said in recent weeks, continuously hearing Joe Tate's name, I thought, well, we really need to have Joe Tate right here on this podcast and pick his brain uh, about all of the things that people have told us that they have learned from either listening to him or talking to him and dealing with him firsthand throughout their lives and their careers. So that's exactly what we did. And I don't want to ramble on because we had an, uh, a conversation of more than an hour. And I will say this much as a preface before we dive into it. Joe Tate is an 80-year-old man. Podcasts, of which this is one, uh, fairly new technology. Joe Tate did not know what a podcast was the entire time we did this interview. He didn't even ask. I just said at the very end, thanks for being on this podcast, you'll hear it. And, and he, he, he said, you know, you're welcome. I don't know what a podcast is, but this was fun. Um, so for all the times on this podcast that I thank guests for taking the time out of their lives to talk to me and to talk to us for this show, Joe Tate both agreed to this interview and then spent more than an hour of his time talking to us for this interview without knowing what a podcast was. That's like next-level dedication to being a guest here on Play by Playcast, and uh, I'm super appreciative of it. So with that being said, let's dive right into it with Joe Tate. 39 years 
of the Cleveland Cavaliers. I grew up uh, broadcasting-wise in a time where TV coverage of basketball games was limited, and if you were interested in the Cavs, uh, per se, you had to watch uh, the radio. And uh, that, uh, you know, that helped, uh, I'm sure, people remember me because I was the only guy that they could uh, hear. The TV wasn't covering ball games. Even the so-called miracle in Richfield, the uh, uh, television, the only TV we had in that series came from Washington, D.C., rather than from Cleveland. Describe your, your style. What, how, what did you do to approach a basketball game? What was good radio basketball play-by-play to Joe Tate? Uh, I always felt painting the picture, the biggest thing you had to do. And, uh, you know, just a nuts and bolts broadcast. Uh, try to let the fans see through your play-by-play what was going on. Uh, I always felt... Uh, the announcer did not have to uh, work hard at uh, trying to convince people that he was the expert or he knew more than they did. Uh, I figure if you just gave them enough information, they could make up their minds themselves. And, uh, you know, it uh, it was just nuts and bolts basketball, uh, which, uh, you know, I hear very rarely uh, anymore. Why do you think we've gotten away from that? <laughs> TV. Okay. I think TV is the reason why. I think a lot of radio announcers are practicing for their next TV gig or their first TV gig. And uh, there's also this uh, idea that you have to uh, convince the listener that you know everything there is to know about the ball game. And, uh, you know, that's, I think that's totally unnecessary. And I also think two guys in the, the broadcast booth, as it were, uh, totally unnecessary. One guy, if he's got any talent at all, can handle the whole thing. The other guy usually just gets in the way. I want to come back to that if I can in, in, in a second because I'm, I'm, I'm curious a lot about working uh, solo in your career. Uh, tell me, though, when you get to the nuts and bolts and the basics of it, uh, what's most important to you in painting that picture? Because, you know, when I listen back to – to Joe Tate broadcasts, um, it's it's clean, it's crisp. You get out the most important stuff, and it's not. I don't want to say bothered, but it's not. You know, it's not bothered by excessive detail, if that makes sense. Um, when I when I hear, I hear what I need to know. Uh, what was important for you when you laid out what people need to know versus description that can maybe sometimes get in the way? As they say, it's a, a, a basic concept. Just try to... Now, if there was something that happened in the arena while you were broadcasting and there was a big uproar and all, <laughs> obviously, you take time to mention it uh, and, and describe it if you uh, think it's important enough. Otherwise, you know, ignore things. Stay, on, stay with the game and uh, just try to... I'll tell you, just in passing, what comes to mind is the fact that I worked for Gordon Gund, who owned the Cavaliers for a long, long time, and he was blind. And he told me when I first met him, he said, you're going to be my eyes. And although I'd always felt describing the game to the point where the person who 
is not there, can feel like he is there, was important. But with Gordon, it was even more important. And uh, in as much as he often came to games on the road and they had fixed him up with his own little one-watt transmitter and uh, (laughs) receiving device. So, you know, I was doing the game, but I could look right across, and there was Gordon sitting there with his headset on, and I knew he was listening to me. And uh, so I worked very, very hard at trying to uh, describe to him what was going on. And I even expanded it a bit because I realized the man could not see. And I would take a little time uh, during lulls to talk about uh, the uniform colors or what they've got painted on the floor at the arena or things that I would think, well, maybe if I was him and sitting here, I'd want to know or see thus and so. And then I'd talk about the banners in Boston and how many are hanging up and who they are and so on and so forth. So uh, he had a great influence on my uh, basketball broadcasting career because, uh, as I say, I knew on most nights Gordon was there, and if I had no other audience, I had him. <laughs> and in as much as he owned the team, I was important. Uh, did he ever give you? I guess what kind of feedback do you get from a guy like that? Um, did Did he ever tell you, "Hey, this is what I this is what I want to know," or I appreciate you putting this into it? You know, he, well, he always, he was very complimentary uh, all the time and appreciated the way I did the game, so on and so forth. The only uh, critique, if you will, that I ever got from the man was during a period of time when the team was not doing well, uh, I came on one night and said, well, folks, Kmart has blue light specials and tonight the Cavaliers are going to have another blue seat special. (laughs) And he finally stopped me and he said, you know, that thing about the blue seat, he (laughs) said, the first time I heard it, he said, I laughed because I thought it was funny. The second time I heard it, I thought, "Eh, you know, not so funny anymore. The third time I heard it, he says, I'm going to tell Joe, Hey, knock it off. You, You beat that joke to death. And he was right. And I knew when I said it more than once, it was a mistake. And uh, so I knocked it off, obviously. Yeah, I guess there's something to finding the right amount of humor and personality mixed in with all of the the nuts and bolts in there. Well, when when you're working for a team that on occasion would lose 60 games. Yeah. Uh, you'd better have a sense of humor. <laughs> well, let me get into that a little bit because you know I was reading the the story you talked about. Um, uh, I think in your book too about when you got the Cavaliers job, uh, and Bill Fitch had said that when he was listening to you at Monmouth, you could make a sixty nothing blowout sound like a six six tie. Um, yeah, that was his line. What kind of skill went into that for you? I enjoyed the game to the point where I was having a good time (laughs) doing the game, even if the game itself was not exactly a thing of beauty. Um, And so I did, I had a good time. And, uh, you know, the school uh, you mentioned, my old alma mater Monmouth and the years that, that I uh, broadcast for them while I was in college. uh, (laughs) I think in the, in the five years I was there, they won uh, seven games, and uh, <laughs> it uh, it was tough. And it it was one of those things that I just I tried to enjoy 
and I did enjoy it. And I think the, the enjoyment came through, even if the wins did. And I wasn't going to be critical either. I wasn't going to sit there and second guess the coach because I knew that he had very limited talent and uh, probably nobody could have squeezed out more than seven wins in five years. What, and this might sound like a cynical question, but like, what's what's the enjoyment that you take from that, and then how do you convey that through it? Um, like, you know, if you're going through a tough season, most fans would say, "Well, like, this is, this isn't very fun." Um, what's fun about it to you, and how do you make that fun for the listeners that they get engaged as well, and and they they hang on your every word for seasons that don't necessarily go uh, the way that the fan wants? Well, I have I just have a good time with it. I. I think the key is I thoroughly enjoyed what I was doing. And, uh, you know, I'm sure we're going to get into this before uh, you and I finish the day. But as things went along and we got down to the queue and into the latter days of Gordon Gund and then the the Dan Gilbert regime started, Mm -hmm. it wasn't that much fun anymore. And uh, I had to work. I got to, I went back to the old days of listening to tapes. Uh, it was a lot like a ball player's in a hitting slump, and he goes and looks at video of when he was hitting 380 and try to figure out what he did wrong. Well, I used to sit down with tapes, listen to tapes when I knew I was just enjoying the heck out of it, and try to figure out, uh, you know, why. Uh, I knew why I, I didn't enjoy it that much anymore, but I wanted to see what I could do to keep up the level of uh, my broadcast in terms of having a good time and having fun and staying with the uh, basics. Uh, and it, it became work. It, I must tell you, in all honesty, it really became work. What did you hear when you sat down and, and listened back and tried to Hey, hey, what made this great? What made this fun? Uh, what'd you pull from those sessions? Uh, just how to, you know, like I, as I say, the ball player, he sees, oh, yeah, I got a little hitch in my swing there. You know, I got to eliminate that. Well, I I could hear things that I was saying that uh, were a little on the negative side. I wasn't ripping, but, you know, it, my, my uh, current tenor was coming through. And so I worked very hard at eliminating that because the people back home uh, who can't get to the ball game, uh, obviously they don't need to know that. Mm -hmm. And and they are probably dialing in after 30 years because I do it a certain way and they enjoy it. And I had to get back to not forcing the, I mean, you can't, you can't force it. But just to try and get back and forget the rest and just do your job. Let me ask you about the calling games solo. Um, I, I, obviously, I think you liked it better that way. Uh, what did you like best about doing a game solo and by yourself? Well, I think that's the way it should be done in basketball. Uh, the pace of the game, uh, now even more than before, was such that one guy can cover it all. If you got a fellow to do the pregame and the halftime, you know, that's all you need. The rest of the time, you've got commercial things you have to take care of. You have statistical things you want to include, plus the play-by-play. 
And uh, I also believe, and I think it's honest, that unless you're in prison or in hospital, <laughs> you're not probably going to listen to all 48 minutes of any broadcast. And so I try to, during timeouts, just go back and, and bring up to speed. Like, you know, the Cavaliers had a 20-point lead and blew it, and now they're back in the hunt again, so on and so forth. Just trying to, I, th- I think all too often, I know it drives me nuts at times. Uh, I turn in a, a ball game and it's in the third quarter and the score is 47-46. And I said, 47-46, well, first low score. I wonder what's going on. Mm-hmm. Well, nobody usually takes the time to tell you what happened that got you the 47-46. They're too busy trying to figure out who the coach should be playing, who they should insert of the game, uh, and uh, other bits and pieces that I think have no point in in the broadcast. I think, and this is me speaking for myself, Like I, I know my, my weakness, particularly when it comes to a basketball game, is, is watching the game with a certain degree of, of smartness, for lack of a better word. Um, and you know, I, I mean, I, I, I could never coach basketball basically. Uh, so I can watch it. I can see it. I can see basic things and I can describe what I'm seeing and I understand, uh, you know, what our team is trying to do, etc. Um, but what I love having the analyst for sometimes just for me is that I know that they, they really in depth know the nuts and bolts of what they're seeing and why things are working. Um, as a guy that worked solo for so long, um, I guess is there is there advice that you would have in terms of watching basketball smarter and the things that um, were most important for you to pick up on from the analytical side uh, that helped paint a better picture for your listener? Well, first of all, uh, I think you're a very lucky man if you have an analyst who really knows the nuts and bolts of the game and then can uh, describe it to the fans and the broadcast to the rather a limited amount of time. Those people are rare. And as I say, if you have one, you're lucky. But uh, most uh, analysts, uh, quote unquote, are either they really know the game and don't know how to say it, (laughs) or they really don't know the game, but they'll run their mouths uh, (laughs) ad infinitum. So uh, it's, uh, I just, the guy at home, he probably he either knows nothing about the game and is just rooting for the old Cavs, or he's a guy who really likes basketball and will, you know, analyze. If you give him enough stuff, he can do his own analytical work. And uh, it's just a, a question of stay with the picture. And uh, radio, the announcer is the camera, and he is the guy who you know, has to describe the whole thing. I know in television, and I did enough TV basketball that the camera is the camera, and the guys sitting there should have the smarts to support the camera. The camera's doing all the heavy work. You're just there to kind of touch up the picture. Uh, That does not happen a lot, (laughs) but that's the way, in my mind anyway, that's the way it should be. And I'm with you. I couldn't coach basketball. I did coach basketball uh, <laughs> one year, many, many years ago in a, a church league. And even at that level, 
it wasn't a lot of fun because you still have to deal with the egos and with uh, all the, there are basics that come at every level of coaching that uh, you just, uh, you either have the ability to deal with it or it's going to drive you nuts. And I, uh, I did not uh, enjoy the coaching at all. And so I have a, an affinity for coaching and I don't want to bring up, uh, you know, I may be sitting there and it's very obvious to me that he made a mistake, but I'm not going to just flat out stop and say, Chiron Lou made a mistake and here's <laughs> what he did. And no, I'm not going to do that. I figure if I keep describing the game adequately, People at all are going to know that Tyron Lue made a mistake, <laughs> and that, that's the way it should be. Just you know, stick with the nuts and the bolts, and it just doesn't happen much anymore. And there's also other factors too. The game, you know, people people said they were flabbergasted when uh, I was offered a championship ring, and I refused. I said, "Look, that's not my team." Mm-hmm. I, my team, if they're passing out uh, rings for a, an announcer that uh, you know lost twice as many as he won, I'll take one because <laughs> that's uh, that's what I did. But uh, I didn't I didn't want a ring for a team or from a team that although I was really thrilled they won, very happy, I was uh, not going to involve myself in it uh, after the fact. So that's why I did it. And uh, it just, the game has changed so much. Not only wasn't that my team, that wasn't my game either. <laughs> uh, I I watch ESPN on occasion uh, when they do the highlights uh, of the previous day. And invariably when a basketball highlight shows up, the guy who is going to the basket and, and doing a tremendous slam dunk has traveled. I mean, he should have packed a suitcase for that trip <laughs> down the lane because he traveled, but they let it go in this day. The, the game, you know, has picked up into uh three point shoot the three point shooting is phenomenal. And it's also ridiculous. It, it takes for my thinking, it mm. takes a lot away from the game. Uh, the other night, I guess uh, I did. I have only seen two Cavalier games, and they both been on TV. And uh, the other night, uh, uh, oh, they they told me that uh, Cleveland beat somebody. Uh, see, I don't even remember who it was, but the three point shooting in the game was something like twenty out of fifty nine. <laughs> Well, I'm sorry. That's not very good basketball. I guess the Cavaliers won the game, but mm. watching guys shoot 59 times from three-point country, forget it. That's why I've enjoyed uh, doing the high school basketball that I've done uh, because, you know, the three-pointers, sure, they shoot three-pointers, but they're not shooting 59 of them a night. There's a little more uh, basketball involved at that level than there is in the pros anymore. It's a it's a new game, and I'm glad I'm not part of it. Yeah, tell me about the stuff that, that you've enjoyed uh, since. I, I know you've done the high school stuff, and I, I saw as well where you talked about the fact that you've done some Mount Union football um, was one of the most enjoyable things you've ever done. 
Absolutely. I did the Mount Union football uh, for 31 years on television. And uh, I was down there long enough that when I retired, they gave me a, a, a actual Mount Union helmet that had obviously been used in combat because <laughs> it had marks on the, on the helmet. But I was that was a thrill. And the uh, yeah, it, that's because they're playing for fun down there. Yeah, they know with with very few exceptions, none of them are going to make the pros. And uh, but they all may become bankers or doctors or psychiatrists or whatever. What they're that's really what they're in training for, and their football or whatever sport they involve themselves in at Mount Union is strictly for fun. And uh, you know, Larry Karras, yeah, he created a machine down there. But the big thing about Larry was not only did he have really good football players. He had really good people and people who went on to bigger and better things in their lives for the most part. So uh, he, uh, his, his whole philosophy and uh, pro- program down there could be studied by uh, people who study such things. And uh, they would realize this man was a very talented man. And uh, yeah, that Saturday afternoon at Mount Union, I enjoy that more than I enjoyed anything else I've done. Those are probably fun stories to tell too of those kids and, and enjoy that side of a broadcast in terms of diving into personalities and people and um, painting the, the personal picture. You know, it was nice. Uh, the uh, night I retired, uh, Larry Karras, it was part of the football banquet. Larry rounded up a guy from each class that I had broadcast for uh, at Mount and brought them back. We had a big round table, and there were about, you know, 15 guys sitting there who had all played at Mount and now had gone on to bigger and better things. But they all were sitting there talking about uh, games that they played when I was broadcasting and listening to the telecast and all that. And it it was, boy, it was like uh, on the road with Charles Corralt. It was... uh, (laughs) a really enjoyable time. And I hadn't seen almost all of those guys. I had not seen them since they played at Mount Union and they were all doing very well in other avenues. I, uh, when I found out I was going to be doing this interview with you, um, I've had Michael Regai on the podcast before um, and, and we cross paths a lot doing stuff with the Mid-American Conference. So I, uh, I gave him a ring and I said, Michael, uh, what do I need to ask Joe Tate? Um, and, uh, one of the first things he said was, uh, to, to ask you about the story of how you first got to the Cleveland Cavaliers. And I know I mentioned the, uh, the Bill Fitch comment earlier. Um, but, uh, it's a lot of times on this podcast, we, we talk about, there's no one way to get to where anybody is. Uh, and, and I, I loved reading about and kind of listening to, to some other stories and interviews you had, uh, mentioned, uh, getting the Cavaliers job. So can you kind of diagram for me exactly how you go from, uh, you know, Monmouth in Illinois to, uh, to the big time of the NBA. Well, if you were going to really follow me, uh, from Monmouth to Cleveland, you'd need a Rand McNally Atlas because <laughs> like so many of us in broadcasting, you're not going to just be at point A and go to point B. You're going to do a lot of it. I started out at Monmouth 
Then I went to the Army for three years. I came back to Decatur, Illinois. And you broadcast then in the I Army, up... too, right? Oh, yeah. We built our own radio station over in Turkey and uh, broadcast the softball games and uh, anything else we could find to broadcast, soccer and so on and so forth. Was it the was but, it like the uh, Army games, or was it local games and things no, like that? No, it was, it was fellas who were playing at, uh, at the uh, – On base uh, – yeah, on base at the time. So, uh, yeah, we even did a grand opening from the uh, PX, like they do, you know, at some radio stations when a new uh, <laughs> market opens up or a new uh, supermarket, you uh, you send your team out and they sit there and interview customers. Well, we did the same thing. We sent our broadcasters down to the PX and <laughs> did a grand opening. And it, although some people just laughed at us, there were a number of them that said, hey, you know what? It reminds me of home. Yeah. And uh, that was good. That was good. And we had a tremendous collection of people there in Turkey. Uh, it was just a little one-watt transmitter. We had that covered the top of the mountain we were sitting on. And uh, we uh, we got a, uh, uh, I forget, Hammerland uh, receiver from the Navy. And... Uh, we, boy, we pirated everything. We opened with the Indy 500, and, <laughs> and we did, you know, football, bass, anything we could grab off uh, AFL. We we stole and put on our air. But now I understand, although they've turned the whole thing over to the Turks, and I'm sure there's not much broadcasting going on there. Uh, but uh, AFL actually did take it over after I left and oh, wow. uh, made it part of. Uh, their whole system. Well, anyway, <laughs> after I came back from the army, I went to Decatur then I went up to Rockford, Illinois. Then I went down to Frankfurt, Indiana. Then I came back to Rockford, Illinois. Then I went down to Ohio university to be an instructor and broadcaster for the Bobcats and, uh, went back to Bloomington, Illinois, then from Bloomington, Illinois down to Terre Haute, Indiana. And it was in Terre Haute, that uh, I actually got my break courtesy of Bill Fitch. I I was the station manager. I figured this was about as far as I was going to go. You know, I had I during that whole montage, I'd spent on a lot of tapes and uh, stamps on uh, trying to find another job or a better job or a broadcasting sports job, and had close calls, but. Uh, didn't land it. So I think, all right, let's settle down. Got the family. We'll just settle into Terre Haute. Well, picked up the paper one afternoon sitting in my office and in the agate type, which is the only thing I really read in the newspaper anymore. Uh, in the agate type, they said Cleveland, new franchise in the NBA, has selected Bill Fitch as their new head coach. Well, I knew Bill very, very well from my days in Monmouth when he coached at Coe. In fact, he was my halftime guest many, many times. Uh, so I just dropped him a note and just said, hey, I know you're going to do well. I wish you all the best, you know. And at the bottom, I put, by the way, if you ever need anybody to make a 66 to nothing blowout sound like a 6-6 tie, let me know. <laughs> And just sent him the note and forgot about it. And then all of a sudden I get a phone call from Fitch and 
He says, you want the job? And I said, well, what do I have to do? He says, come to Cleveland. You're going to uh, tape the uh, first game, first home game, and then Nick Maletti, the owner, will listen to the tape. If he likes your stuff, why, you got the job. And that's exactly what happened. And ironically, Joel, the, the, the kicker to it was I went back to the hotel after Dick told me I was his guy and he was hiring me. I went back and I called back to Terre Haute, Indiana to tell him that I wasn't coming back. <laughs> and uh, the lady who answered the phone says, it's a good thing you're not coming back. They just sold the station. It's, I forget what the outfit was. But uh, he's already told everybody that he's going to clean house and bring in a whole new staff. So there you go, Terre Haute without the window. That's typical broadcasting. Uh, and uh, I would have been looking for another job anyway. So it worked out well in the long run. How nerve-wracking was doing that tape? Uh, yeah, I have to admit I was nervous. I was, you know, I realized that this one taped broadcast was going to uh, probably determine what chance I had uh, in pro sports. And on top of that, they put me in the hockey booth at the end of the old Cleveland arena, as opposed to a typical broadcast position. So I was looking at a basketball game from a, uh, a position that's not really that conducive to broadcasting sure. basketball. Although over the years doing <laughs> uh, numerous high school games, more than once I broadcast uh, basketball games from the stage at the end of the gymnasium. So I had seen that perspective before, but I was nervous. And, uh, you know, I, I heard all the, the bad moments and didn't know about the good moments, but I gave the tape to uh, Bob Brown and he gave it to Nick and Nick gave me the job. How is NBA, and this kind of goes back to, the, the beginning where we just talked about how broadcasting has changed a little bit, but just how has the landscape of NBA broadcasting changed from back then? Uh, to landscape's, now? A good, <laughs> landscape's a great way to put it, Joel, because <laughs> they have, you know, every place that we broadcast from when I came into the league, it was a good position. You, uh, some were better than others. I always hated to sit on the floor, referees, coaches, players, coming in in front of you and, and it makes it more difficult to broadcast. But uh, at least you were in a centralized location. Well, then somebody got the wise idea. They could sell the seats along the court and the radio was the first thing that got bumped out. And then we started showing up in arenas all over the league in sometimes ridiculous spots. In Boston, <laughs> they put us in a corner elevated about 15 rows terrible terrible place to see <laughs> the game i mean to the point where uh, i can recall the the first night i worked there if somebody took a shot out of the far corner you couldn't see them because the basket standard blocked your view and sure enough somebody from boston launched a three-pointer out of the corner and i just said and that three-pointer made by a player who will be named later so it uh, oh, and, and now some of the places are absolutely ridiculous. Uh, they're very, very high, 
and usually off-center, and it's extremely difficult to do the games to your best uh, ability when you have to worry about working off a TV monitor. And I guarantee you there are places, uh, for instance, uh, Dallas, you you do a lot of the game off the TV monitor because you are so far away from the floor, it's even difficult to tell who's who. Uh, one of the other things Michael told me to ask you about was, uh, and this is something he's done too, was the football basketball relationship and or not the uh, I'm sorry the basketball baseball relationship, and uh, and doing both simultaneously. And uh, when he was on the podcast, we talked about stories where he would do one game in one city and another game in another city in the same day. Um, what was it like for you for, for almost 20 years, uh, particularly in those early months of the baseball season, balancing being uh, with the Indians and the Cavaliers? Yeah, you could throw the hockey team in there as well because <laughs> I was doing the old Cleveland Barons in the American Hockey League in addition to uh, the basketball and then the baseball. And... Uh, I don't know. I was young and foolish, and I guess <laughs> it didn't bother me. I, it was fun. It was it was really fun. It was kind of a challenge to do it and do it well. And uh, so after a while, it, it wore me down. Usually about the all-star break in baseball, I would really start to get a little worn down. And so I, I needed the all-star break more than anybody else did just to kind of take some time off. What did you enjoy most about baseball that was just different from broadcasting basketball? I think uh, if, if I am honest and I will be honest, I think the thing I enjoyed the most was working with Herb score on radio for seven years. That man, God rest his soul. That man was an encyclopedia of baseball knowledge and uh, there were so many times that things would happen on the field and Herb would say, well, here's what happened. And he'd, you know, tell you about it. And then about three innings later on the squawk box from the press box, somebody would reiterate uh, what had happened, but Herbie had it nailed down when it happened. And uh, we just had a great relationship. It was one of those, times that uh, you just knew it was right. Two guys that really fit together well. Uh, we had very little to do with each other away from broadcast. I mean, he had, he had been in the league for a long time, so he had friends and places to go and did. And uh, I have always had an affinity for trains, so we had one rental car. I chased trains all day, and <laughs> he'd chase a good dinner at night. So, uh, it worked out well, but, but Herbie taught me so much baseball in the years I worked with him. And I told him many times, I said, boy, if I ever owned a baseball team, you would be my general manager right from the get-go because you have, number one, a, a good eye for talent, and two, uh, a knowledge that uh, I really uh, took advantage of. And yeah, I, I, I have had few partners, Al Menendez when I did the New Jersey Nets, Ed Ingalls when I did the uh, college game of the week on CBS. Those two, along with Herbie, were the three guys that when you sat down with them, you just knew you were in the right place with the right guy. And the uh, chemistry 
really uh, came right to the front. You know, we talked about doing basketball solo. Uh, baseball is so predicated on, on that relationship, too. Uh, can you kind of tell me a little bit about how that would kind of play itself out on air and creating that relationship with Herb and, and you know, I, it sounds crass to say it, but like utilizing one another uh, on the air to get the best out of each other uh, when you were doing Indians games. How did you best do that for the time you guys were together? Well, my philosophy was I, I almost knew that Herbie had something to throw into the broadcast. And uh, when I felt that, boy, I, you know, I gave it to him and let him do his thing. Yeah, baseball is a much more relaxed play-by-play uh, -play sport. And uh, you, you really take advantage of the other guy. Uh, and uh, it... Uh, I don't know. It's a, it's a chemistry that it's just there. And I said I had the now by the same token, when I did TV baseball, I had uh, well the first three years I had Bruce Drennan, which was an experience unto itself. Uh, Bruce does TV talk sports in Cleveland is one of the most unique characters I have ever met in my life. But boy, it was like uh, going to the rodeo with, with Bruce. Cause you didn't know what he was going to say or what it was going to happen. <laughs> then they got the right idea. Uh, I shouldn't say the bright idea of Reggie Rucker, who was a ex Cleveland Browns football player. And they put him in the booth for two years with me and, you know, Reg was learning baseball uh, at the pro level while uh, he was sitting there with me. I, I remember early on, we were in Baltimore after a game, and Reg had left his overcoat in the uh, clubhouse. And the Indians had been massacred that night, felt like 12 to 2. And <laughs> Reg went in to get his coat, and when he came out, he had this amazed look on his face. He says, those guys are in there eating like there's no tomorrow. They're really chowing down. He says, they just got murdered 12 to 2. <laughs> I remember at the time, one of the sports writers who was there just looked at him and said, welcome to baseball. <laughs> you know, and because with football players, if they got beat uh, 36 to nothing, uh, they were not in a mood to eat. Baseball <laughs> players are always in a mood to eat. It's just something you learn. But Reg, you know, I had I enjoyed my two years with Reggie. I learned a lot about the NFL with uh, talking to him. But uh, he was not a baseball announcer, no way. And then I then I got a hold of a guy who was a real baseball announcer, Jack Corrigan. And Jack, of course, had been the voice of the Rockies for years out in Denver, and he is the consummate pro. And so. Obviously, it was not difficult to work with him. I read when you retired, you still had all 2,000-plus scorebooks and scorecards from your games. Yep. Uh, do you still, still have do. They're in a big box in the basement if you want them. <laughs> What'd you... I might take you up on that. Um, what did you... Why'd you hang on to them all? Uh, and, and how much do you... Do you ever go back and look at them? Or, or did you ever go back and look at them? <laughs> I think... I think the term is anal retentive. <laughs> I just... <laughs> I just, I, I am a pack rat. And in fact, that's one thing in retirement that I have been doing and begrudgingly, 
but doing, and that is going through all this stuff and uh, getting rid of a lot of extraneous. But I still haven't uh, divested myself of all those post scorebooks. And uh, yeah, I just saw yesterday, I, I picked up one that was just browsing through it. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff down there in the basement that's still got to go b- before <laughs> I go. Or of course, when I go, it will definitely go. Does it? I, I don't know. Does it do anything for you to look through them? Like, do 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 you relive memories of games? Like, will it come back to you when you just start flipping through and, and looking at stats of things? No. Basically, what I do is is look at names and recall fellas that uh, I really enjoyed knowing in baseball. Uh, Tommy Ragland, uh, Horace Speed, Jack Brohammer. You know, you're not going to find them at the Hall of Fame, but they were really good guys trying hard to make the league and stay in the league. And, uh, yeah, that's why I read the names. And then and then on the other side, the other team, I look down and say, oh, who is that? You know, there's a name I should remember, and I don't, and so on and so forth. But, uh, yeah, I just, I don't spend a lot of time gazing <laughs> at them. But uh, uh, once in a, if I'm down in the basement, Invariably, I will go over and pick up a book at random and just browse through it uh, because it does bring back memories. It sure does. The, the young buck in me would say, uh, what was it like to broadcast games of LeBron James? But uh, I'll, I'll expand that. Uh, and, and are there other, other people that you most enjoyed being able to cover and being able to watch uh, in any sport that you did in, in your career? Oh, yeah. Uh, in basketball... I happened to get in on the end of Oscar Robertson's career. (laughs) And although Oscar was kind of a shadow of his former self, you could still see that the man had great talent. It's just that, and I found this out for myself, that as you get older, things don't come as quickly as uh, they used to. Uh, So I saw Oscar at the end of his career. You know, Julius Irving, I thought, was fabulous. Uh, Michael Jordan, outstanding. Uh, the one little asterisk there is, uh, I used to have supper with Michael's dad in the press room at Chicago. Interesting man. And, uh, a guy who really didn't let Michael go to his head and, uh, you know, tragically he was murdered. Uh, but, uh, uh, how, how did you come you to have know, those dinners? He was there and I sat down with him. He looked right, like that's... a nice old man. And I just sat down and introduced myself. He introduced himself. Uh, in fact, the first time he introduced himself, he just gave me his name and uh, dummy me. You know, I just, <laughs> I didn't take any further. They're a nice guy. We just sit and we, I think we were talking about the weather and <laughs> anything else. And, uh, just like I'll tell you, uh, when LeBron came to the Cavaliers, uh, his mom, whom I'd heard all kinds of horror stories about in terms of being a wild uh, woman at ball games, and well, I probably had uh, as many meals with Gloria in the, the team get-togethers as anybody. We got along great. I she was funny. She was a, she was a good gal, and 
In fact, on my 3,000th broadcast, they had made me come down and sit on the floor because they were going to, I don't know, give me something at halftime. And uh, so at halftime, my family and all were upstairs in one of the loges, and my son looked out, and he said to my wife, he said, Gene, look at look at that. There's a there's a uh, lady sitting in my dad's lap. Gene <laughs> looked out. She said, "Oh, that's just Gloria." <laughs> and my dad came to me, or my son came to me later. He said, "Dad, who's Gloria?" I said, "That's LeBron's mom." So, no, she she and I, uh, I don't know. We just enjoyed uh, a passing relationship, but. She was always fun to talk to, and uh, she, she, she and LeBron came through hard, hard times, and uh, so I guess we all, unless we have walked in the same shoes, can't really appreciate some of the stuff they had to do just to stay alive, and uh, you know, LeBron is truly one of the greats to ever play the game. Uh, I think he's if you ever got a team of five LeBrons together or five Michaels or five Larry Birds, the five Larry Birds would not be a pretty thing because the game would probably be about 50 to 40. But uh, they, you know, they, uh, five LeBrons, you'd never lose because LeBron doesn't like to lose. And uh, I'm sure the recent uh, problems the team has been having is probably playing on his mind as well. And uh, we'll just have to wait and see uh, how all that plays out. There's a lot of rumors and speculation, but uh, LeBron was fun to watch. I mean, that performance he put on in Detroit and uh, in the playoffs, what he's just went crazy. So 24 out of the last 25 points, regulation and overtime to beat the Pistons virtually single-handedly. That goes right in there with the night Julius Irving took a game over against Cleveland in the third quarter and scored 27 points and just was phenomenal. The only thing that happened in that Philadelphia game was everybody stood around and watched the doctor. And when it was over, yeah, he got Philadelphia the lead, but everybody else was out of sync and... Hmm. Julius was tired, and uh, the Cavaliers came back and won the game in the fourth quarter. You know, I, I, if, I, if I can ask you another technical question, uh, when you talk about, you know, the relationship with, you know, Gloria and, and having dinners with, you know, Michael Jordan's dad and just getting to know the, the guys and the people, um, you know, LeBron's background and all of that, uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you earlier that I, I, I skipped over um, you know, I, I found a quote from Fred McLeod where he, he, he said you were you were really good at, at real storytelling. Um, how would you tell stories most effectively and, and weave them into a broadcast, particularly in basketball, uh, when you don't really have a ton of time? I The stuff I'm telling you, for the most part, never made the air as far as I was concerned because there wasn't really time for me. You know, I have somebody down on the floor writhing around in pain and they're bringing out the stretcher. <laughs> then, then you can turn into a storyteller. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I don't know. You, you probably not old enough to remember Wait Hoyt. 
who was the broadcaster in Cincinnati for years, everybody would pray that it would rain on the Cincinnati Reds because that would give Waite a chance to tell his stories. And he was one of the great storytellers in the history of baseball broadcasting. But as far as uh, I was concerned, uh, in baseball, I tried to pry something out of Herbie because he was the guy that had the stories to tell. Yeah. And I was with him for about four or five years before one time he astounded me by, uh, we were talking about pitchers hitting home runs, and he told me that he'd hit two home runs off Gaylord Perry when they were in the minors together at, at San Diego. And I, I never heard that story before. Of course, I went down and I asked Gaylord, and he said, yeah, he was lucky or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's a that's a neat piece of baseball lore that uh, that can make the broadcast and, and help to make it a better broadcast. What are you most proud of but, looking back at all of it? Like, I mean, what what sticks with you most? Well, I think, ironically, the two things that stick with me most was the first time I went into Boston Garden, the old Boston Garden, and I walked in right when we got there on the bus, and I walked into the, and I looked at that parquet floor <laughs> and that that tired old arena, and I realized, by God, I'm here. I made it, because back when I was a kid, the only time you saw the NBA on TV was on Sunday afternoon in the championship playoffs, and Boston was always playing somebody, L.A. or whatever. <laughs> and that parquet floor was, boy, just the thing that you remembered most about the the, situ- the uh, scene. And then when I walked into that arena and st- actually stood on that parquet floor, I I just had a great feeling of, by God, I finally got here. And at the end, the last broadcast, when I walked out of the queue and I, I told the, my security guy, I said, hey, just hold on a second. I just want to turn around and take a look at this for the last time. And in standing there uh, in front of an empty arena, I just, it did bring back a lot of memories in a hurry. It was a fast forward on the videotape in my mind. But uh, those two things I remember vividly and probably will for the rest of my life. Uh, there are just so many. So when you're, when you're in a, a basketball situation for 40 years, uh, you remember so much and you forget so much. Because the year I had with the the Jersey Nets was a phenomenal year Mm. because they came out of nowhere to make the playoffs. And the year I had with the Chicago Bulls was horrible because they uh, their coaching uh, bordered on idiotic and uh, the team just it was a very young team and it floundered and died a miserable death. But there's another guy I worked with that saved the day, uh, Johnny Red Kerr who had played in the NBA and with the Bulls. Boy, John could John could save a broadcast. Uh, we did TV, and uh, you get old John cranked up. He could tell you stories <laughs> and uh, rock the room, and they say save more than one broadcast when you're looking at that mess on the floor saying, good Lord, how am I going to get through this? 
What'd you? How long did you stand there on your way out of the queue and just look back? Probably ten minutes. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. It, uh, you know, I've been back twice. I was down there for Zdrunas Ilgowskis' retirement because he is one of the most memorable players that I have because of what he went through physically to play in the NBA. He could have grabbed the money and run and gone home and bought Lithuania, but <laughs> nope, he hung in there. He had all, I think, seven operations on his foot and came back and had a solid career. Uh, so I went down for his retirement when they put the banner up there. And then they had a, I guess <laughs> he couldn't figure anything else to do. So they had a 40 year reunion of the uh, Miracle at Richfield team, which I really enjoyed because most of the guys came back and, uh, that was, that was most enjoyable. Uh, but, uh, on both occasions, I didn't stay for the game. I just came in, did my thing and got out of there. And, uh, yeah, it's, it was a big part of my life, uh, at the time, an enjoyable part of my life. And, uh, I have no regrets. I'm not looking back. I've seen him play twice on TV in the seven years I've been gone. And one was the seventh game when they won the championship. And uh, the other one, I watched uh, them play Golden State here a couple of weeks ago as we're, brought, as we're taping this. And, uh, you know, I thought, oh, there, here is a team with some serious problems. And uh, evidently haven't solved those problems yet. Hopefully they will. I have nothing but good things to say about the Cavaliers. I have uh, nothing but uh, hopes that they're going to win more championships. But uh, I'm. It's not my game anymore. Unless they, unless they start playing the games in my driveway, <laughs> I will not be involved. I have two more quick questions for you, if that's okay. Um, sure. The first one. Uh, and kind of randomly, but uh, where did you come up with uh, Wham with the right hand or Wham with the left hand? That came when uh, one night Hot Rod Williams took the ball and went down and really hammered one home, and it just popped out. I just said, Wham with the right hand. All right, and my engineer at the time, David Dombrowski, who has now risen to the heights at uh, the queue in terms of broadcast uh, management, uh, he said, you know, that sounded pretty good. You ought to maybe do that once in a while on your broadcast. Well, at the time, WQKT in Worcester was doing a lot of high school ball, and they would play the tape of the Cavs game back after. So I had a chance when I was driving home to listen to the broadcast. It made for a good time to critique. And so I heard that wham of the right hand, and I agreed. I said, yeah. That sounds pretty good. And so that's how it got started. And, uh, yeah, I use that for the rest of my broadcast days. And uh, last thing for you, uh, is there anything I have not asked you or should ask you um, that, uh, that, I, uh, that I haven't and should? No. I mean, <laughs> I think we've, uh, we've spent a lot of your time. But uh, it's... Uh, it's such that uh, the broadcasting part, that was easy. All the stuff that goes with it was hard. 
in terms of finding the right job and moving around and uh, you know, trying to get a break. And then when you're there trying to stay on the straight and narrow and avoid the temptations that come with travel and all that sort of stuff. So it's a, it's a career that I have enjoyed immensely. Uh, I just realized the other day that I have actually been, I was actually in broadcasting for 60 years. Wow. And that scared the heck out of me. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so I've enjoyed it. It has certainly given me a good life. Uh, you know, I'm not exactly uh, buying mansions these days, but at least I've got a nice home and uh, I can concentrate on things that are far more important than basketball. Well, Joe, this was, uh, this was immensely fun for me. Um, I, I mean it in all sincerity. I mean, I, literally a, countless guys have, have mentioned your name when I've talked about uh, influences, particularly the basketball guys um, on, on this, uh, on this podcast. So uh, I don't know why I didn't click earlier, but I was like, I should reach out and see if I could uh, see if I could pick Joe's brain. So, uh, when when you said yes, I was I was thrilled, and it was uh it was fun here for an hour to to uh, hear what you had to say. So thank you for doing it. Well, that's quite all right, Joel. And to show you just where I am in terms of modern uh, things, I have no idea what a podcast is. So <laughs> you say we're doing a podcast. The only pods I know had peas in them, and uh, I know that's not what you got there. So. Whatever a podcast is, I hope it works out well for you and that uh, one of these days somebody could be interviewing you about your rise to uh, fame and fortune. What an absolute treat to have Joe Tate here on episode 88 of Play by Playcast. And good just to hear. I love the perspectives of people on this podcast and the basic approach of here's what you need to know when calling a basketball game. And that's what I'm going to tell you. Um, and, and not getting bogged down in, in a lot of the gunk that surrounds it, but just being really good at describing what you see and letting the description of what you see tell the story. Being so good with your description that it tells the story itself. Um, and, and that's one of the things that made Joe Tate really great and uh, super excited that we were able to sit down with him for the amount of time we did for this podcast. And again, uh, uber appreciative of the fact that he did it without, without knowing what a podcast was. <laughs> so, so I cannot, I cannot thank Joe enough for being our guest here on, uh, here on episode 88. Listen, I reach out to a lot of people for this podcast that I've never met before, and they take the blind leap of faith of like, all right, sounds cool. I'll give them some of my time. Not only did I, had, had I never met Joe before, um, he, he didn't know what he was coming on. So, so I can't be more thankful that Joe Tate uh, gave more than an hour of his time uh, here for Play by Playcast. As always, find us on social media. We are at PXPCast. I am at Joel Godet, J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T. Or you can email me, J-G-O-D-E-T-T at BSU.edu. If you have thoughts, questions, comments, concerns, if you want to be a guest, whatnot, um, hit me up on social media or via email. And we are back here next week for episode 89 of PXP Cast. Until then, see ya. Hit it, Marshmallow. We are out. And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.